Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Welcome back, everybody. Two Guys, One Book. I am Brian, and I am joined, as always, by Tim. Tim. That's right. And today, we are reading a Brian nonfiction pick. It is called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America by Alec McGillis. Alec McGillis is a journalist for ProPublica, and he's worked for other places as well. And um, this is, the way I describe this book is not, it is a book about Amazon, but it is not the history of Amazon. It's more about how Amazon has uh, exacerbated wealth inequality and and has affected small town America in a variety of ways. I, I picked this one because I find Amazon very interesting. I'm not the biggest fan of Amazon, but that's okay. But you they do are, order from there. <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while, I don't really, all I do is order from Amazon, something I can't really find anywhere else. I ordered one thing from Amazon this last year. It was a safety vest for work. Why didn't you just go down to your local safety vest store? Because we don't have, I mean, the local <laughs> safety vest store didn't have the selection I wanted, or and the prices were three times what I found on Amazon. I think you're very anti-local, Brian. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it is a side effect of the uh, Amazon. It is the Amazon effect, really. You, you missed the good old days where you could go down to get your local safety vest at a good price. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I do. Because <laughs> back in the day, I had to walk there and 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 get it tailored and all that good stuff. I had tailored. Yeah. Okay, uh, sorry. Let, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you. Why did you pick this book? Because you find it interesting. I, pick, I find it interesting. I picked this book because I I don't know where I heard about it. To be honest with you, it came out just two years ago, and it was on my shelf to read for a long time. And I figured it would lead to good discussions, so I wanted to pick it for this podcast. Yeah, I find it, you know, I think it touches on a, a couple of things. It touches on uh, America uh, and the wealth gap. It touches on how uh, technology has influenced our, our lives in a lot of positive ways, but also in a lot of negative ways through unintended consequences and sometimes uh, side effects of technology companies behaving in ways that I wish they wouldn't behave, not necessarily illegal either. So I recognize that, but also, um, yeah. Yep. So that's why. Well, well, it's, uh, these are important topics to discuss for sure. And I should obviously say that I'm going to be biased to some extent, uh, having some ties and also add the disclaimer that nothing I say is representative of, uh, you know, my employer or anyone just, this is a you know random podcast that no one listens to, but um, <laughs> let me ask you then: What was? Uh, do we want to talk about like your first your impression of the book overall? Oh sure. I mean, um, I found it very interesting because each chapter is about a specific place or a couple a number of places that all are affected by Amazon in this particular way. Like he starts in Seattle and then he talks about Dayton and then he talks about Washington D.C. and then El Paso, Texas. And each place the author finds very uh, intriguing and captivating characters, real people that he uh, 
uh, tells their story about how um, Amazon has affected their life in direct or indirect ways. And I found it so fascinating because he'll start out each a chapter talking about uh, Bill Bodani Jr. in Baltimore, who uh, worked for the steel mills at Sparrows Point outside Baltimore, and how that B- Bill Bodani eventually um, had to had to leave, retired from the steel plant, and then the steel plant shut down, and then at Sparrows Point, where uh, it was one of the largest steel producing areas in the country, got uh, leveled, and then warehouses started pop- popping up there, and Bill Bodani had to go back and and. In his retirement, he needed extra money, and so he went back and worked at the Amazon warehouse that stood on the same grounds of a steel mill. And you know, like I'm not, and then like something like that is, you know, very neutral towards Amazon, but it's 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 a study of the changing uh, makeup of America and the working class, and and how technology and, and outsourcing and all these other various factors have have. Um, affected the working class and and how Amazon has kind of filled that role to some extent. And to some extent, maybe, you know, it's been that that as good as maybe people think it is. Yeah. Those are, I think the way he laid out the book is interesting, focusing on different cities like Seattle, Dayton, El Paso, Baltimore, DC, um, different areas affected in different ways, but with the general overall theme. Um, I think it's largely more about like post-industrialization and the evolution of the economy as a whole. And like, you know, globalization has played a huge role in that as well. So I kind of see Amazon as a big player in all of this, but also there are a lot of macro trends going on that, you know, are just sort of happening in parallel. Um, and I think the personal stories were powerful for like sympathizing with individual people and their backstories. But at the same time, I think, you know, they could, it was a little disjointed because it hopped around from a lot of different people and then it would zoom out to like the business side of things. And then it's, it jumped around a little too much for me to like, Mm. for it to feel as cohesive as it could have been. And then, Mm. and yeah, I guess for me, it it wasn't, um, he could have been a little more focused in general about like, is this sort of this anti Amazon thing and what are the critiques versus the macroeconomic trends versus the personal stories? I think he was trying to weave it together. Sometimes it felt like it worked. Sometimes it didn't. But uh, just one critique. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a good point. Is that I do feel like he very much at times zoomed out to just kind of show, tell the story, then so much explicitly say like what could be all the, be the causes of these people's stories, which I I thought he did. I thought he did a good job of like. Uh, you know, introducing the characters or the real people that uh, he told their stories of, and then and then explaining um, kind of their how they had to navigate the world and and what their uh, choices were and what their realities were. But at the same time, yeah, I, I don't I don't think he really elaborated on the rest of the dynamics of the world and all that stuff. Yeah, and to be honest, my first reaction to a lot of this is like, you know, people hate. The company so much like you don't no one's forcing you to buy stuff for them and but at the same time to be fair like when you know they sort of have this presence of this much uh influence and control and like low prices then a lot of people probably don't have that many other options so it feeds this cycle where they maybe get more powerful um but you know there could be more of a concerted boycott backlash effort 
for the people who are like truly unsatisfied with the the services. Sure, but I think also there's a specific chapters that dealt with you know the business side of things where you know small businesses that were supplying office supplies to local cities just through uh, you know uh, their relationships with the local cities then were forced to go through an online portal to uh, or create kind of online uh, interface for the the cities to order office supplies and then the small businesses didn't have the technology or the IT to to adapt to that thing which you know is it's you know adapt or survive i get that but at the same time you know it, you know the business side of things it's you know they're not that's nothing really they can do they're just kind of um so kind of uh in a tough spot yeah that's true and like you know i i do want to sympathize with the people with small businesses who are struggling and it doesn't seem right if like um, and this is part of the larger thing in globalization, like instead of local, uh, you know, money circulating in that local economy, it's like it's sort of being extracted in a sense and going to these other places. But, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's just part of how things kind of work to some extent. And like the local economy evolves then to have more things that like can people can uh, buy and experience there. Right. Um, ideally, but I, I recognize the phenomenon of like these coastal cities getting more powerful. And that's a big reason why Trump had such a big following is that these people felt forgotten about and left behind and powerless, a lot of his base, I think, and for like valid reasons. So, so I think the lesson there is like, we can't ignore the socioeconomic factors that are, um, in play here and the role that companies are playing and what the consequences are. It's fair. But I, I felt like even just just from the story aspects of these and the research he did about the different cities that he he talked about in the book, it helped me learn a lot. Like I learned a lot about Seattle. I learned a lot about Dayton and Ohio and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and all these places in, in, in the country that he talks about. And I felt like it was very compelling that way to 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 take a deeper dive. Each chapter was like. A little snippet of history about uh, different locations, or you know how lobbying got started in Washington D.C. or, or things like that, which I found uh, just interesting on their face. Now, you know, your critique might be valid. Where, like, you know, how does that exactly? It's not a straight line from the past to the uh, to the present with Amazon uh, being the only factor there. But I thought it was still on on the face interesting stories too. yeah i mean okay so i've lived in like dayton and seattle now for like several years both and um i think yeah like dayton had a lot of economic issues unrelated to amazon and i think overall like companies like microsoft and amazon have like benefited the economy out here but also it leads to this thing where like a lot of people are like more wealthy and then there's like a bigger gap between people like maybe in the service industry who can't are being priced out and stuff so mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it feels like, in general, like a late-stage capitalism uh, phenomenon, (laughs) Uh, Mm. which there's no easy solution. And I think lobbying is complicated. Lobbying, like, it doesn't really feel right that we say it's lobbying, and it's these big companies paying money to, like, convince the government to do things that they want (laughs) them to do. Like, it's just sort of a socially acceptable form of kind of, like, 
I don't want to say bribing, but you know, <laughs> uh, influencing. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it's like I don't know. I feel like maybe there should be some regulation around that. Um, but yeah, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I just with the lobbying thing and and throughout the rest of the book, he he throws a lot of numbers out there, and I I think that was one thing that I kind of I kind of eventually just glossed over. Uh, the point of like how much money Amazon spends on lobbying, how much Facebook spends on lobbying, and how, and like, were, and then he throughout the book he also talks about how much Amazon tries to uh, get in tax breaks or how much their quarterly profits were or something, and he's throwing out these million dollar statistics and and at at different points it just it just seems like just a lot of numbers and I, I that's why I felt like the stories grabbed me more than um any of the details about amazon's wheeling and dealing or what yeah it's easy to get lost in the numbers and like at the same time with all the phenomena of getting tax breaks like i feel like businesses will just sort of naturally try to like get benefits that they can and save money when they can and a lot of businesses Mm kind of do that and i think it is sort of the role of the government to like hold businesses accountable and obviously like things like lobbying like complicate that relationship um Mm -hmm. and responsibilities so i don't know uh yeah it's complicated i i think one fair critique is was the whole hq2 process because you know they were sort of they pitted these cities against each other and i think we're a little like disingenuous or unclear about who actually had a chance to get the headquarters and and there are benefits to it but also some drawbacks to like creating a huge presence somewhere to the to the local city and economy so that whole thing, I think, was an attempt at, like, good publicity, too. And I think it sort of backfired. Um, so, to some extent, felt like a bit of a blunder. Yeah, I agree. I, I did. He, Yeah, he didn't address it, like, I mean, he, I guess he did address it a lot throughout the book about HQ2 and how these cities would try to bend over backwards to appease Amazon or, you know, supply them with all this information. And then Amazon just went ahead and picked, you know, like, Washington and New York. And then even New York didn't even want, didn't even end up working out because uh of the i don't know politics there but um what i found interesting was like he he mentioned something in the book about potentially amazon uh could 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 have with hq2 could have looked at you know cities that have been trending backwards like a cleveland detroit or st louis and, and maybe have taken it upon themselves to uh go in there and inject some life into a a a, a, a uh shrinking city but they just kind of went ahead and just picked the their short list was the east coast favorites uh minus baltimore <laughs> and then eventually picked washington yeah I, yeah i remember dayton and cincinnati put in like a joint bid and and they do have a big presence in cincinnati but i think more so for like transportation purposes like planes and fulfillment center but yeah they got a huge hub at cbg airport in cincinnati mm-hmm. yeah so i i mean like just massive um, but yeah, I don't, I, yeah, clearly not, uh, headquarters, but still, uh, you know, middle of the country can easily get, you know, anywhere quickly from Cincinnati. Right. I, I think one interesting thing to talk about is just the general evolution of like labor trends. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, where, where do you see that heading? And as far as like where it's been, where it's at now and, and where you think it's going? It's a good question. Cause like, I, you mean like like unionization? Is that kind of what you're thinking, or just like uh, that's that's part of it? But so you've got like sort of the knowledge worker 
um, high tech, higher end jobs, and you have sort of more blue collar like labor jobs, and then you've got um, unions playing more of a role in those too. So yeah, how do you see it, all those phenomenon, all those things like evolving? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it seems like anymore the blue collar labor jobs are never going to be uh, 30 year careers. You know, like I feel like, you know, back in the day, somebody could go at, at, to, to a factory at 20 years old and work there for 30 plus years. I just don't see that happening anymore because I feel like the labor intensive jobs are going to be more exploitative of the labor. Maybe that's the wrong word, but um, just run, run them through the ringer. Get them, get them in, get them, you know, use them up. And when they're, when, when they've had enough, they'll quit and then you'll go find somebody else. And I think, I kind of feel like that's what Amazon's model was that they didn't mind high, high turnover in their warehouses because they felt like they could provide, uh, you know, $15 a minimum, you know, a, a wage at Amazon was a good, good for a lot of places. And so it attracted a lot of people. So Amazon could use them, um, keep track of all their uh, uh, comings and goings and work at the warehouse to maximize their efficiency. And then when the employees have had enough, they'll leave. I feel like it's more than just Amazon that does that. I think most labor intensive jobs do that nowadays. So I don't feel like they take care of their employees as much as they should. And I think it's the higher end uh, knowledge based workers that um, get the incentives and the perks that come along with the job. So they're more likely to stay there for a while. And that's probably just going to continue. Um, yeah. And I don't think unions are unions get a bad rap because I think there, there, there has been some misuse of them in throughout the last several years. And people have anecdotal stories of like how unions, you know, people, or, you know, unions are taking money from your paychecks and it's just going to people who aren't really doing much for you. But I think younger people are realizing that the history of unions was overall positive on labor so that yeah, I think younger people are more inclined to be supportive of the union. But I don't know if that's going to ever get enough traction. Yeah, I don't know that much about unions, to be honest. I think they definitely seem like it was a real necessity at a, at that time when more people were involved in that kind of work and stayed at the, in that in those jobs for long periods of time and there are lots of like occupational risks and safety and health risks i'm thinking of like yeah like these intense factory jobs or like coal mining jobs and stuff like that that were had more employees back in the day um yeah i mean it's complicated to organize people in general for anything and yeah, Amazon seems to disincentivize that, and they do have a really high turnover, even for the knowledge worker, like high-end jobs, like a relatively high turnover compared to like mm. similar companies. But like, have you seen videos of like an Amazon warehouse or how it works? I don't think I have. It's uh, it's worth checking out on YouTube. There's some interesting videos, huh. but like they have these like robots, and they talk about them in the book that like lift up these shelves and they sort of move them around, and then they have like pickers um kind of like take things out and like sort them or and that kind of thing so and the pickers are humans right yeah for now yeah. so, so their state the, so the pickers are humans they're stationary and then the robots bring the shelves to them right they the robots continuously go in like a, a grid um oh. 
but one one critique and i just had to like uh take a photo of this line is that because i've seen people do this on tiktok and like tiktok live like they've had like amazon workers live streaming what their job just because like they're bored i think but uh but this the author said the screen in front of them flashed the next item to retrieve and from which compartment in the stack of bins at some warehouses the bin in question even lit up denying the picker the satisfaction of the of the one small hunt <laughs> and it's like bro like but that's the thing i feel like he just had this agenda the whole time and he's very just like you know everyone has their views but he's very liberal and very anti-amazon and it's like this is just one example like i've seen this how these people work like the thing lights up so you know what to grab like do you want mm-hmm. people to just have a you know it's like to help their job and i get like the labor jobs in general aren't that like fulfilling uh and stuff but it's like they do offer like educational things for people who do want to do things and like the minimum wage is higher there than like other places but it's a physically demanding job and like and not the most like uh you know fulfilling in a sense too <laughs> so i right. get i get yeah yeah it's okay if we don't see completely eye to eye on this book or topic. <laughs> we can, we can, we can agree to disagree. And, uh, on the I know, things. I know. And that's okay, Tim. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's just slowly sucking the soul out of America, but that's okay. <laughs> Stop buying safety vests from them. <laughs> I buy one thing a year. It's not like me not buying one. Like, that's the thing. You, I mean... One person boycotting Amazon is not going to do a thing. So yeah. if I buy one safety vest from Amazon, I don't feel like I'm. I'm that's uh, should be. Uh, 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 I should worry about that. No, I just think like at the end of the day, like it wouldn't exist if a lot of people didn't want it as a company. And right. I don't know, like people like the convenience of things. And then in the pandemic, it, it like, it definitely was tough on people who worked there, but it helped a lot of people who like needed things who couldn't get them otherwise. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know. It's complicated. There's yeah, no easy. Yeah, I mean, that's like, just it. Yeah. I'm not saying Amazon uh, has no place in America. I'm just th- thinking, I'm just saying it has an unnatural larger share of, um, of influence in American life than I think it should. That's that's all. yeah, and that's totally fair. Like I think it's good to critique big companies and hold them accountable and that kind of thing. I just think the author sort of underplayed the bigger socioeconomic macro trends that are happening. But I do agree with the HQ2 campaign critique. And then the one other critique we can talk about, I think, is like third-party seller. Uh, behavior so I, i'm curious what you think about that as well in the sense like um competing with with third line third party sellers online you mean like amazon creating uh their own version of popular selling items and then pricing them lower than third party sellers offering their own products which kroger cvs all these other companies do the same thing though right the the difference between kroger and cvs is that when you go to their website they are not they are not the only place you can buy things like through kroger.com or cvs.com you can go to the store and buy cvs brand tylenol instead of the name brand tylenol sure but it's not like um cvs is taking a percentage of tylenol's uh uh, uh profits you know amazon is the store and they're selling items and they're yeah i i get what you're saying i'm not doing a good job articulating it though like to sell online 
you have to be on Amazon or else you're not going to get sales. And Amazon takes a percentage of third-party companies' uh, revenue that they make through Amazon. So that's a little different than being in a physical store at like CVS or Kroger. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I mean, you can say they have outsized power on this platform for online sellers, um, but I do think it is a double standard to say like they're exclusively doing this when these other companies are. But the... The angle I look at it where it is valid to critique them is like, you know, these third party sellers are like helping power the company in a sense and give people like quality options. And by like competing and undercutting them, like it's just not making them happy. And it sort of hurts the company and brand in the long run, I think. Um, And it's like, yeah, like you could make all this cheaper stuff, but there's just so much like cheap stuff from like China and stuff and overseas. And it's like, you know, I think it's better to have more higher quality stuff that people can like reliably trust rather than just trying to like copy everything. And in my sense, like I feel like I haven't seen as much like of the Amazon basics brand recently. And like, I'm sure they still do a lot, but like, I feel like they've received the message from Washington. They've had these like panels and hearings and stuff. And I think they're trying to cool that down just to head off at like antitrust, anti-monopoly type talk. But that's my sense. I don't, I don't actually know the details though. Right. And I think, intentionally so like no one knows the details except for like people that actually amazon they're doing you know and and so it just oh but you see the thing about going back to that office supply example is that you know it seemed like amazon was pitching two cities directly that hey cities you can you can have use our website as a marketplace and then uh and then saying how that will be good for local business, but at the same time, they're making the local businesses that go through Amazon give them 15% of their sales, you know? So it's just like, uh, it's it just seems to me a little like duplicitous that Amazon is trying to work with cities to set them up with this online marketplace while at the same time forcing the local businesses to give them more money to be on that marketplace. So. I mean, you know, maybe maybe they don't do that as often anymore. So maybe they're learning their lesson. But I, you know, it, it's from that El Paso chapter. It seemed like they Amazon was uh, uh, kind of two faced in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I think that chapter was a good example of that issue. And um, and like a guy, they talked about a guy in the audience just being like, "What is the trade off here?" And then it, they eventually got to the fifteen percent thing. And it's like, you know, you really should just be upfront with it. It's like you get the opportunity to sell to all these other customers and get assistance with the platform and that kind of thing. But it's like, we are going to charge you this much and it could hurt certain people. Like that's like their margin and their profit. So, you know, it's, it's important to be upfront about that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, definitely some, some fair critiques. (laughs) Yeah. Going back to the labor stuff though, like I, so I feel like the future, you know, like who's, don't you think like with the people picking things off the shelf, like they already have like robots who can kind of do that. And then they have like AI who's going to, that's going to replace like knowledge workers and stuff in a large extent. So like, again, these are some broader technological um, evolutions that are like going to put a lot of people out of work. I feel like. Sure. Yeah. And I, and, you know, I agree that goes beyond Amazon. It's not just, you know, whether or not Amazon develops technology for AI or, uh, you know, that will replace a bunch of workers or it's boss dynamics or somebody else or whatever. 
know, it's it's like yeah, the, it's it's more than just Amazon, but I but I felt like um, it was very interesting how um, yeah, this book was focused on Amazon specifically. So you gotta know. So yeah, you know that going into this book that it's gonna be focused more on Amazon than the broader issues yeah. or other technology companies. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just saying, like, for the labor stuff, like, yeah. I'm actually just kind of concerned in general and, like, wondering what that's going to look like. Like, like with all these technological advancements in the past, there's always, like, new jobs to, like, people to to go into and take on. I'm sure there will be some of that, but at the same time, like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting because I feel like it ties in well with the that AI superpowers book that we read, right? Mm-hmm. That he talked about like what kind of jobs would be kind of AI proof. And it's a lot of the, the human to human, you know, healthcare or um, elderly care, or that kind of stuff um, that is more emotional and connecting with uh, other human beings that AIs just can't do. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, especially like nursing more than like radiologists where it's like, you're you, there there's some like physical aspect and human aspect involved and you're not just like reading a scan or something um yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm interested in that topic and a little worried about how everything's going to unfold but <laughs> anyway yeah going back to the book but, though uh yeah i mean i mean yeah but like i think touching on that that labor part is an interesting uh or touching on that labor thing is like you know we need to be clear-eyed about the future, and I think we got to realize that if AI is to help human uh, society, that we're going to have to develop other strategies to make sure that people don't feel like they're continuing to be left behind, or that it's been the working class and the laborers that have been left behind so far in the early 21st century. And my hypothesis is that if AI continues to rapidly develop that, that, and it affects the knowledge and more higher educated skill uh, labor market, then I think feel like then finally that is something that might actually affect enough powerful enough people that they might actually be able to voice their com- concerns loud enough that politicians might hear and actually be able to pass something or help help in some regard so that AI doesn't just completely wipe all professions off the face of the map. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that makes sense? <laughs> no, I, I see what you're saying. Um, it's, we're still at the very early stages of a lot of this and AI has gone through like these hype cycles in the past, like other technologies, but now with these recent developments of like chat GPT and like Microsoft, Google, and all these companies getting involved, it, it does seem like a turning point as far as the capabilities and like, and so, yeah, and you're saying like people who are in these more well-off positions, once they start feeling threatened and, and losing jobs, then there's going to be more of an incentive to like push through protections or legislation or some kind of benefits to protect people. But yeah, there's no easy that's, <laughs> solution. Wait, yeah, that's you said it better than I did. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> well, not the first time, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we, I'd like to learn more about like the robber baron era and like the trains and how powerful these people were like um, – like Carnegie, right? Like Andrew Carnegie mm-hmm. or something. It's like, what were the conditions that led to that and ha- what was done about it? And like, cause I feel like that's sort of the closest parallel people make between like the tech companies is, is those companies, right? 
Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. And I'm not an expert in the robber baron era by any stretch, but like, isn't that era what led to the antitrust laws that we have that to try to prevent monopolies from happening today? And that those same antitrust laws are ones that the, we seem to not want to use because ever since AT&T in like the 80s, there's been like no real big breakup of a company that's been thought of as a monopoly. Yeah. And OK, that's a good point. I think neither of us are an, like antitrust experts. And yeah, like what, uh, how come it hasn't been used and how have these companies evolved? It's just hard to draw like direct parallels between like the railroad industry and the tech industry because it's like YouTube is not the freaking train, right? Like it's like, <laughs> it's not that simple to, to like say this is that. It's pretty different. I mean, I would say that like even the internet itself is still relatively young. I mean, it's only like 30 years old that we we are still adapting as human beings of having it in our lives every single day. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm I'm like I'm so bad at like reaching for my phone when I when I have a down moment that I can't even, you know, think, you know, on my own when I when I'm bored or something. It's it's constantly there. So I think I feel like as a, on a society as a whole, we're still adapting to having the internet and technology in our lives on such a uh, immediate and every second uh, moment process. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, 30 years is like nothing. And it's like right. so much has changed like compared to like what the time was before that. Now it's like all the shopping is done online because obviously, and it's like, what will it look like in 10, 20, 30 years? I don't know, but I feel like a lot of trends are like increasing due to technology. So mm-hmm. the rate of right. change. Yeah. So you're right. So I think, you know, going back to the rubber barons thing is that like it took massive companies with massive wealth and to a point where uh, the country realized that this cannot proceed. And I think we are just now entering that, that time where a lot of people are skeptical, skeptical of not just Amazon, of like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, um, you know, and and what I Apple. I mean, like what these companies are and and how ubiquitous they are in our lives. And is that really a good thing? You know, I, I think, you know, I think it's still a debate. You know, it's not. I'm not. I think personally that it may not be the best thing for us that be adherent to to such a few tech companies, but. Then again, they really improved our lives. So, you know, I think that is still something we are still navigating right now. Like, like they were at the beginning of the Robin Robin Baron era when they were trying to figure out what to do with all these companies with so much wealth. Yeah, I think the reason also it's a hard parallel is because like we have these benefits where it's like I'm using a MacBook, I have an iPhone, I watch YouTube owned by Google, like we have social media by Facebook, we're buying things on Amazon, Amazon Web Services underlies a lot of the internet. And so it's like, there's a lot more tangible uh, benefits as far as these industries. So for everyone to have these strong, united negative sentiments as a, on a societal level, it's not that simple. Like, I feel like the, the sentiment will kind of like bubble up and boil over when like some things come to light or certain areas, but then it's like hard to stick to to one thing. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I, I feel like there are a lot of good that the tech companies have provided for us in our life, but I feel like a lot of people are realizing that, like, at the same time, they're all, all every tech company is just looking out for number one. And, and is that always the best thing? But that's like the nature of companies, though. That's like, true. 
you know, that's that's why it's like that's a a, um, a critique of our economic system of capitalism, like mm-hmm. how businesses operate to make profit to like for themselves and shareholders. Like, right. so it's just like, yeah, it's a we need to rethink some fundamental principles about like what we want society to look like and, and that kind of thing, I think. Right. And I think, you know, I just want to loop it back to the Seattle thing. Cause like you said, you know, Seattle was, you know, was, it was native Americans, you know, were across the Pacific Northwest before, you know, the United States expanded out there and all that stuff. But I think, you know, bringing it back to this book as well, it's, it's, you know, this book isn't really about, you know, the, the broader growth of this nation and, um, you know, macro uh, ideas like like your critique is is well founded. I, it is more about wealth inequality and the concentration of, uh, you know, the win the the winners the winning cities are are just continuing to win more and the losing cities are just continuing to lose more. And that disparity is just growing. And I think one one thing I remember so vividly in this book is that he said, uh, comparing Seattle to St. Louis, in 1970, St. Louis had 100,000 more people than Seattle did. But, you know, these two cities have went in completely opposite directions. And Seattle now is twice as big as St. Louis. And, and that's just like 50 years, you know, to have such population disparity between two big cities like Seattle or St. Louis was a, is still a, a good sized city. I don't know the exact population, but you know, it was the heart of the Midwest for a long time. I think, you know, I think the summer Olympics were held in St. Louis in like 1904 or 1908 or something like that. But anyway, what I'm getting at is like, there was a time when, when more cities across the whole country were more uh, on a, on a level playing field, but I feel like now we have such winners and such losers that it's, and I think that's ultimately what this book is about is like, how did it it does focus on Amazon, how it, um, Amazon has maybe not, has Amazon, it focuses on how Amazon has either benefited or maybe exacerbated that discrepancy, but you're right in the sense that it doesn't, tackle any other other issues that may have contributed to that as well yeah i think that's well said i but like yeah and so there are a lot of factors why someone would move to like seattle from st louis to maybe other than job or like want to live there but but yeah uh i think if you just describe this book as like looking at these like trends that are damaging especially to like midwest and southern cities at the macro level and like told through the tale of Amazon who has exacerbated and benefited from to some extent, like these trends, then I think that's a good way to describe it. I like, I have my critiques, but I think like that doesn't mean like there aren't good points that are made here. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, I especially, you know, I, I spe- personally liked the, the second chapter about Dayton, Ohio, because mm-hmm. living in Cincinnati now, I, come to know just the greater Dayton area a little bit. I don't go up there a whole lot, but I, but I work in a lot of the other s- smaller towns around Dayton, which you mentioned in that book. And I thought it was very interesting how he, uh, the story that he tells of, of the, the man in that chapter and the man's girlfriend and their, and their, and their children, and how they try to get by. It's, um, I think kind of a tragic tale of, of 
people just trying to do their best, but still always falling short. So I think it's, I mean, to that, for me, that one's not even really about Amazon. It's just about um, the economic situation of this, of this one family in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and then, and then I enjoyed uh, the, the Seattle chapter later where they talked about uh the taxes that Seattle wanted to pass to help fund uh, uh, treatment for the homelessness problem in, in Seattle, where and then Amazon uh, eventually cut a deal, but then later came out against the deal that they had agreed to with the people with the city council of Seattle. So I just thought that was so fascinating about the the, the politics of Seattle. Even um, is just how interesting it was that. Um, people want home, homelessness to be addressed, but at the same time, they're not, um, they get maybe swept up in the theater of local politics that keeps them from addressing the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Homelessness is a huge problem out here, but it's also, you can't really talk about it without talking about the drug and um, mental health crises as well because it's all kind of intertwined i think um but yeah okay so if you think about the book from that sense like people from the coast learning more about individuals in like texas and dayton you know like el paso and dayton like it's it's interesting in that sense to get more individualized stories and like the guy from pennsylvania like i think it's it's just healthy in general to like have more of a grounding when you think about like policy and like um national issues um so right. in that regard it's um well intentioned i think right and i think yeah I, and i don't think he ever really says he has an answer or solution i think he is just more telling i think he does a great job of telling stories that are happening to real people in america and you know how amazon intersects with these stories and, and he went out of his way to find stories where Amazon uh, intersected with, I, you know, like, I'd be, I'd be curious to see like how many people he talked to that had compelling uh, sympathetic stories, but maybe didn't interact with Amazon at all. And he probably left those out because they didn't fit the overall arc of his book, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like he still did a good job. Yeah, there's a, a lot of you could tell there's a lot of work that went into this. Um, right. But I am curious just to like go back to the the labor uh, stuff one more time. Is what to what extent is remote work sort of somewhat of a rebalancing act in the sense like if someone doesn't want to live in Seattle but still work for a company based in Seattle, like you probably have that opportunity. Like a lot of these coastal cities, like and like in San Francisco or Silicon Valley, like there are all these companies that will just hire remote workers now. And I think that's great for people who like want to stay in Ohio or Texas or like either have a lower cost of living or like be around family or whatever, for whatever reason they have ties to like some state or city or area that isn't like one of these major coastal ones. And like, I can say anecdotally, anecdotally, like that's happened a lot, like working with people in these different states that don't have to move somewhere physically. Um, I think that's a good thing, but it is limited to like people who can work on, like on a laptop. So that is, that is, the that's one thing. Yeah. It's limited to a very, uh, select type of worker who is more. Yeah. 
uh, just just capable of working remote. Yeah, I think it also opens, uh, you know, the impl- from the p- employer side, they get to hire maybe better qualified people across the board. So maybe that makes it more competitive to get those jobs. You know, right? Yeah, interesting. I never thought of it that way before. Yeah, there's probably pros and cons for to it, mm-hmm. and I think there's something to be said of like a physical presence or at least having like regular meetings with your coworkers in terms of like building yeah. camaraderie and like working together. But I'm just saying it's sort of spread out some opportunities that were previously yeah. more limited. Yeah. I heard uh, Disney is now making people come back in the office four days a week. Oh, is it four days? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like maybe the big t- tech companies and in- can still will still do that and i'm sure remote work remote work isn't going anywhere but i think there's going to be some sort of pullback to like maybe a more structured hybrid system where instead of like having people in the office only 50 percent of the time so that at any one time half of your staff is there and half the staff is at home but you're still having to do zoom meetings anyway because people are at home having dedicated days where people are in the office so you can't can have face-to-face interaction yeah i have mixed feelings about it i think there are definitely benefits to it and i like to go mm-hmm. in occasionally just to have a separate space but like for people like who have kids and or like a bad commute or don't want to live in that city like i think they should have the option and um or at least have places that offer that option um and you know it's just going to be a company by company decision but Amazon does have a lot of office space out here that is, I think, going unused. So it's like, is it how much do you want to keep paying for that? So we'll see. Uh, interesting. Interesting. One other thing is like I did enjoy the very end of the book. He 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 kind of bounces all over the country, going, you know, all these different places. And then at the end he talks about Baltimore and Washington, DC. And I thought like he's he lives in Baltimore currently, the author does. And so I think it's very fitting that he ends it there because I'm sure he's well aware of of the dichotomy between those two cities. And it's a very uh, clear example of of his whole thesis of the book is that some cities are winning, some cities are losing. And like, you know, it's, and there's, it's only going to continue this. And this trend is only going to continue. And I think he's right. And and so, yeah, we can can segue this into rating. Well, let, let me just read one other thing. This was my favorite quote of the book. Oh, this was about the Seattle chapter, about the the, the politics of Seattle, uh, local politics in Seattle. Everything. Seattle had become proof that extreme regional inequality was unhealthy not only for places w- that were losing out in the winner-take-all economy, but also for those who were the runaway victors. Hyper-prosperity was not only creating the side effects of unaffordability congestion and homelessness but injecting a political poison into the winter cities political poison political poison he meant he meant that in the sense of like that whole the whole fiasco with the cities uh, the city council of seattle working a deal to tax companies and then having to repeal that and all the all the the animosity that the citizens felt towards the city council that most of them were not voted back in um because the homelessness problem was seen as like 
a mismanagement by the city council instead of like a bigger society problem. They're like, well, if we just get different city council people in there, then they can fix the problem. I, I mean, that's an oversimplification. I'm not doing it justice, but I just felt like he articulated there that, you know, there are the, even the winning cities, like we, I talked about winning and losing cities a lot, but like even the winning cities maybe are suffering some ill side effects from this dichotomy between the rich and the poor cities. You know, it's, it's not just like all sunshine and rainbows and, in in the the cities that are growing and prosperous you know they they're they're suffering they're suffering setbacks as well yeah i definitely think like homelessness crime drug use uh super high housing prices you know these mm-hmm. are all major uh issues in like larger cities that are supposedly the, the winners when you paint winning right. and losing cities um right. so yeah i mean that's a good point yeah. So maybe like if there's, I think there should be a better way to 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 say that maybe because like winning and losing is so. I mean, would there be better words to use for like up, like growing and 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 shrinking? Maybe it's it is hard. It's tricky to narrow it down because it's like you can do the geographical right. like coastal Midwest South dichotomy, but then it's like within these cities issues as well in different ways so there's no it's hard to characterize it need a need a brand expert to weigh in (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah but i enjoyed this book i mean um were you like uh, did you listen to this one or read it i actually got it from the library and then i wasn't reading it fast enough so i got the audiobook from the library and then did it on Ah. like three times speed but (laughs) i I got through it so i i i'm i I, this was a tough pill for you to swallow. I was all right. I can uh, I can give you my rating if you're ready. All right, go for it. Lay it on me. I was gonna say two originally, to be mm-hmm. honest. I was I was really leaning towards that, but after discussing it with you and just reflecting on like, I think what the author set out to did was very admirable, and I do think the individual stories were you know powerful. I I think the intentions of this book were great, um, and it is a very important topic that needs you know could benefit from more examination and perspective. So I'm going to bump it up to a three. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Good. I'm going to give it a five. I'm giving it a five. Boo. <laughs> I know. I know. I love the, I love the book. I think the author did a great job of telling compelling stories about real life people in America. Um, you know, I feel like if, if you're aware that it's an anti Amazon book, going into it, you can just take it at face value. Like, you know, so I pull, I really, I readily admit it's a uh, slanted book, but I feel like biased or slanted. <laughs> all right. What's the difference? Yeah, exactly. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is like, I still feel like he makes compelling cases about how things are, are in America where, what the trends are, with these different cities dotted throughout the country. And like, I think it's a good book to make you think. And I like that. And like I said, I I love the storytelling he does. I I think he does like the amount of research and dedication this guy gave to write this book. Like 
I mean, this, I read something like this and I'm like, I'm never going to be an author. Not that, not, not that like I'm realistically trying to be an author, but I'm just thinking like when it comes to a, uh, a type of journalistic uh, nonfiction storytelling, I don't think you can get better than this. I mean, like, is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. I mean, I think at times he rattles off a bunch of statistics about Amazon's quarterly profits or how much millions of dollars they got in tax abatement from Ohio or something. And, and I'm like, sure, he has to put that in there because he wants to be thorough and diligent and make sure he that he proves that he is he has done the research and that's great. But like, you know, to me, I was caught by the storytelling and I don't, and I, I love the book and I don't know if, um, the, the tech companies on a whole are going to help America potentially, uh, you know, become less divided. And I guess that's not their job. I understand it's not their job, but I feel like I sometimes I feel hopeless about the future of the country, but then I also realize that like everything is just so gridlocked in, in, in politics that, you know, nothing is really going to change on a dime. So, um, Maybe a book like this will help get people talking about uh, what kind of help the working class and the forgotten cities need and, and what kind of help the winning cities need. Because, you know, we need to still continue to show compassion and empathy to the homelessness, the homeless and uh, compassion and empathy to, you know, the people that are left behind in the working class. Yeah, that's well said. I just think and this will be a great like documentary as well to examine. Mm not just like people who have suffered and these changes, but like people have benefited as well in some ways. And like third party businesses, like, you know, I watch Shark Tank and they talk about selling on Amazon and like benefiting from that. So like, you got to examine all the angles. Um, and it's like, yeah, we're not going back to the days of like you work 30 years in a steel plant and you had the pension or whatever that came with that. So, you know, things have evolved a lot in a short amount of time and they're going to keep changing in ways we can't really fully understand or predict. And I think, you know, the government does have accountability as far as like managing, uh, companies and holding them accountable for the sake of people and voters have to elect people who hold companies accountable. Um, and then again, like we were saying, we have all these benefits from tech companies. So it's hard to like hate them when we have like, free gmail and youtube and like all these things so i'm just saying like it's it's a weird state to be in where it's like we have all the convenience and benefits of these things but also at the macro level as on a societal level it's sort of all this um these tough things are happening and it's just a lot of change for people to adapt to so you know i think it's the bottom line good takeaway for me is like you know have sympathy for people who are struggling and compassion and you know we're all tr sort of working through this and i think at the end of the day most people are just trying to figure things out and their place in this world this crazy world of ours so yeah, yeah. and i think i think you know um <laughs> my takeaway from this conversation other than you know you're a good corporate shill um <laughs> but <laughs> my yeah, other right. takeaway is that 
to acknowledge that we are still in this, uh, uh, I mean, this this whole stage of the internet and technology companies and everything is still new, still fresh in the greater in the greater pot of of American society, and we are still figuring out how to deal with it. So um, there's no easy solution. It's not gonna, you know, and um, tech companies have benefited us greatly, but it's also um, it's an evolution that we have to keep tabs on to see how society goes from here. And I'm going to hold you accountable to boycott technology, Brian. So, uh, <laughs> just, you know, I would hate for you to be a hypocrite. <laughs> I know. But at the same time, my actions aren't going to matter. Oh, that's very uh, cynical. Come no, on. it's the fact. It, Actions of a single individual are not going to matter. It's when they are done in the collective. You got to rally the people, though. You got to say, rally the people. Be the change. (laughs) Right. I'll be on the street corner this weekend with a a placard around my neck saying, uh, you know, down with Amazon. (laughs) And Google and Facebook and Apple. I'll include them all. fang all the fang companies yeah Yeah. all right so that that was fulfillment what are we reading next tim uh what are we reading next i don't know it's your pick i know um we're reading and then there were none by agatha christie i think it'll be fun to read a mystery we haven't actually read one before i think and something kind of like so yeah yeah i'm looking forward to it should be good um, so you all out there in, in the interwebs can go to our website, twoguysonebook.com, all spelled out, twoguysonebook.com, and let us know what you think of Fulfillment, if you've read it, or if you are pro-Amazon or anti-Amazon, <laughs> um, or if you can, just can't wait to read Agatha Christie's, so mindless not, uh, fiction. <laughs> yeah, feel free to skip Fun Fulfillment <laughs> and just yeah. go on to Agatha Christie. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> just Do what you want. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Keep reading. Keep reading.